it's old-timey crimey. I am Christy. And I am Amber. And we are here to bring you true crime from the days of yore and yesteryear. It's always better in black and white. Damn straight. So, we have a fantastic, really fascinating case lined up for you that we're going to talk about. In we're going to... I'm sure our British listeners are going to love what I'm about to say. Jolly old England. Oh, Lord. (laughs) Apologies. Apologies. Yes. (laughs) I apologize on her behalf. (laughs) She does a lot of that. (laughs) So before we get to that, of course, we wanted to make sure that you know about the Patreon, which you probably do if you're a listener. But we wanted to remind you of its existence and the fact that it's only $5 a month. You get five bonus episodes every single month. So much extra content, over a hundred episodes. You can go back and binge. And we talk about a lot of lesser known crimes that we have to dig for. It's it's stuff you're not going to hear on other podcasts because so frequently we'll find the case in the newspapers, you know, in the old newspapers. And that's just not as covered as stuff that you can find on, say, Wikipedia or Murderpedia or, you know, any of the pedias. Yeah, honestly, like most of the uh, tinies, if you can find it on a pedia, you did something wrong. Yes, because that's too big for a tiny. The tinies aren't that small. We're not talking like five minutes. They run from like 30 minutes to 45. Sometimes we get close to an hour. <laughs> longer than it takes you to strangle somebody. Yes, yes. Much longer than it. That, that's a really great uh, tagline for the old tiny crimies. Longer than it takes to strangle someone. Excellent. Or, or hang. Oh, yeah, that too. That too. So Amber told me a story this week about uh, a man and his wife and their servant and just a really strange set of circumstances. (laughs) Oh no, not the port wine. (laughs) No, party foul, I cry, party foul. So yes, it was definitely a, a weird and interesting tale of a woman we unfortunately don't know too much about. And her husband, who seemed like the last person you would expect to do anything bad. Yes. So you should come on over to the Patreon, patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, and give that a listen. And like I've said before, even if you just do it for one month, you're charged up front, and then you can listen for the rest of the month. And, you know, just at the end of the month, feel free to stop if you've had your fill, if you've had enough, if you... (laughs) Nobody ever wants to stop. Need that money for a gallon of gas. (laughs) Right. Okay, that's fair. You know, any reason whatsoever, we don't take it personally. We understand that everybody has different priorities, but even just five bucks for so much, so much content. I do take it personally. (laughs) Amber takes it personally. I do not. And also, uh, we know we have some new listeners. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. And... So tell a friend. That's that's another thing you can do. If you don't if you want to save that 5 bucks for a gallon of gas, you can tell a friend or two about us and if you like us, they'll probably like us and then they will thank you for introducing them to such a fine fine podcast as ours. Yes. <laughs> yes, do that. You want your friends to thank you, don't you? Oh, yeah. There you go. And if nothing else, they'll laugh when they hear the name because people really tend to get a kick out of the name. There you go. <laughs> That's one of my, that's going to be my legacy. I came up with old-timey crimey. So, all right. Amber, shall we talk about Jane Clausen? Let's talk about Jane. Okay, talking about Jane. 
So I got a lot of my information from the book Pretty Jane and the Viper of Kidbrook Lane, a true story of Victorian law and disorder by Paul Thomas Murphy. So some of my quotes and such are going to come from him. When I'm saying Murphy, I'm talking about this book that I read. So the main events we're going to be discussing happened on April 25th, 26th, 1871. Now, let's, let's put a little context into this, historically. This is in England, and just one month before the main events of this case, Queen Victoria opened the Royal Albert Hall, which featured the world's largest grand organ, or at least at the time. Somebody made a bigger organ since then. <laughs> so, because, uh, yeah, I, uh, no, okay. I just have to wrap my head around the, the giant organ. Well, I mean. Or my hands. Or <laughs> whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the month prior to that, Queen Victoria's sixth child, Princess Louise, was married off. So getting those kids out of the house, she had so a whole bunch. So she can have more giant organs. Well, I do believe uh, Prince Albert had passed by then. But when they were together, she did enjoy his giant organ. Yes. Well, is that why it's Prince Albert in a can? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Or why uh, that piercing is called a Prince Albert? I'm going to fall down a rabbit hole later on. I just know it already. Maybe incognito mode this time? So Nope. With images. In between all of that, the census in the UK was performed on the night of April 2nd. One night, they did the census. There were 31 million people, and they did the census in one night. How? I don't know. I have no idea. They just went from house to house. And How many people live here? Exactly, yeah. They also, this was the first time that they recorded economic and mental status of householders. So, I, I don't know what they said about mental status. That was never brought up. How are you feeling? How's everything going in your life? We have 800,000 fine. <laughs> and three bloody cheerful. When the census came through the district of Eltham, which is in southeast London in Greenwich Borough, the census takers stopped at 3 London Street, which was the home of Ebenezer Pook. P-O-O-K, in case it sounds like I'm saying something else as well as the location of his business, too, which did printing and stationery. Now, the census recorded that living in the house were the family, and they had one servant, a maid of all work, named Jane Maria Clausen. She was 16 at the time and due to turn 17 in less than a month or so. Her uncle called her a good, handsome girl. Her father, James, had been a fisherman, and then a dock worker, and her mother Jane was a dressmaker. Together, those two had a son and three daughters, although the son passed away in infancy. So Jane was born in 1854. She had two sisters. She was right in the middle of them. One was four years older, Sarah, and the other one was younger, and that was Maria. I actually have a birthday for her. For Jane? Yeah, her birthday was April 28th. Just a couple days after the main events that we're going to talk about. Yep. She went to school, a day school as well as Sunday school, so she got some religious education, which was pretty standard at the time. But 
This family went through quite a bit of tragedy in the 1860s as Jane was growing up. Her sister Sarah died at age 13 in 1863. She was stricken down by tuberculosis. And the same thing happened three years later to Jane's mother. So two deaths in the family in just three years. And then it was just James and the two remaining daughters. And then pretty soon after that, it was just the two remaining daughters because James was like, uh, see ya. Not cut out for this, apparently. I'm going to go live on the Isle of Dogs. Because <laughs> why not? Sure. You know what? Life's hard. I'm just going to avoid it. What the hell? Jane was 12, and so she was able to go into service. But the younger daughter, she was too young for that, so she got off, sent off to live with a family in South London. So Jane, she had a few jobs working in households. One, she worked for a butcher, then a sea captain's family. That one... Seemed like it was a bit much for her. She she bolted after a little while because I think it was two years she spent there, perhaps. There were a lot of uh, generations living in that household. Children, grandchildren running around, and she was having to take care of people and clean up after that many people. And she just was like, that's mm, not my deal. Then she ended up finding a job as a maid of all work in the home of Ebenezer Pook and his family. Now, it's not like we think now of anybody who has a maid, you must be just rolling in it, you know? But this was a time period when going into service, working in a household in some capacity, was there was an entire servant class, essentially. There were a lot of people for whom this was a career, or at least a job for women until they got married or found something else. That's why 12 years old, it's like, okay, we're going to pack you off and you're going to go clean up after other people. Have fun. It's going to be good times. Yeah, and, and this was not a place that was, like, rolling in money. So, like, I actually have that it was a really cramped quarters above the print shop. And that Jane might have actually had to share a bed with somebody in the family at times, a cousin, Harriet. Yes, it was a cousin of Mrs. Mary Pook, who was, of course, the mother and wife in this household, and her cousin Harriet Chaplin lived with the family. And yes, this was not standard to have a servant rooming with a member of the family. And so maybe they, they couldn't afford. They were maybe living just a little bit above their means. But they were not too higher up in the class system than she was. It's just that, you know, her family had had all these tragedies befall them. So... She would have been expected, according to Murphy, to work 80 hours or more per week. In comparison, he cites uh, 56 hours per week on average for, say, a laborer in a factory. So she is, I mean, you're, you're basically living in your workplace. Yeah. Nobody knows what that's like now. Yeah, I, I wouldn't know anything about that um, at, at all. No. I think Jackson went to the doctor this week in his shirt that I got him that said, don't ask me, I just live and work here. <laughs> I was like, no, you're, not, you're only allowed to wear that in the house. You don't live at the doctor's office. You don't work there either. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it's a lot of work and not very much pay. She probably would have made about 15 to 20 pounds per year. That's between 1,000 and 1,400 pounds in today's money per year. 
I mean, like, I could afford to have a live-in maid at that rate. Exactly. There's a reason why even a middle-class family in cramped quarters was able to afford a maid, and it's because they were paying them next to nothing. Uh, I mean, a skilled tradesman could make as much in between 75 and 100 days. She's, she's, not, she's not rolling in it either. She got a roof over her head, food in her belly, which is again why this was such an attractive option for families when they ran into trouble or if they had too many kids. You send a kid off into service and then you don't have to feed them anymore. So life gets a little bit cheaper. Yeah. And then that kid still gets to eat and continue to live. And also, you know, has some sort of income coming in, which either goes to the family or helps them out, you know, depending. You know, there's a reason it was popular. So some of her jobs she would have had to do every day. Lit the fires, kept them going. She would have needed to care for the stove, the grates, the windows, sweep the house and the front stoop, dust. Uh, deal with chamber pots, which they call emptying the slops. Yeah. If you want something horrifying, there you go. There, there, that's your present from me to you. That was a phrase I did not need to hear. And now you have it. Yep, thanks. You're welcome. Make beds, cook meals, serve the family the meals, set the table up for the meals, do the washing. And above all, she was expected to know her place in the social order. You may live in the household, that does not mean you're part of it. So Murphy says, quote, For Jane and her thousands of sisters, the perils of forgetting one's place were extreme, and Jane had forgotten her place. End quote. Bum, bum, bum! <laughs> so some of those perils might be basically losing your entire source of income, and any potential of continuing in this field of work, because if you got tossed out on your ass, then your employer had got to decide, well, do I want to write them a character reference? And if the answer was no, you were going to have a really hard time finding your next placement. Jane was expected to keep herself apart, to basically always be the maid of all work and never Jane in their presence. But by mid-April of 1871... She could kind of go back to being Jane again because she left the Pook household. Such a hard name. Pook. <laughs> it's, it's just it's Pook. I'm going to Pook ya. There was Pookin going on. There, there was definitely some Pookin going on somewhere. So she said that she had given them notice a month prior and was going to try for a job in a factory. She found another roof to put over her head for a, you know, at least a period of time. Another servant girl, Emily Walledge, she, at least she and her mother, I don't know if there were other members of the family, had rooms. And these two, Emily and Jane, they were kind of friends. Emily had also worked for the Pook family. Also, it seemed as much as she was free to be Jane, she was also down in the dumps for a little while. Seemed very depressed, lots of crying. And, uh, but then the months started to come to a close. And she visibly perked up. And that was also right around the time that she started telling her cousin that there was a little bit more to her relationship with the son of her employer, Edmund Pook. He was 20 and the younger of just two sons. There, there, there was a little more going on there than just, you know, making his bed. Oh, she made it all right. Yep. Brown chicken, brown cow. <laughs> 
This was not her first romance. She had been seeing a James Harvey Fletcher at one point. He was the uh, son of a woman who had a ham and beef shop. Mmm, ham and beef. So you'll always have some good ham and beef. But seriously, like back in this time frame, that would be baller. That'd be pretty cool, yeah. You're not going to run out of food. But that was not meant to be. James Fletcher had hopped on a sailing ship to live life on the high seas, and it didn't look like he was going to come back anytime soon. And Jane had what she considered physical proof of this relationship with Edmund. She had a locket that he had given her. On Sunday, April 23rd, she told her cousin, Charlotte Trott, we've got the Trots and the Pooks, dear Lord. Trots and Pooks. As they went out for a little post-tea walk, she said, quote, Charlotte, you must not be surprised if I am missing for some weeks, for Edmund says I must meet him at Shooter's Hill either tomorrow night or on Tuesday night to arrange to go with him into the country. He says he will have such a deal to tell me and we shall have to make all the arrangements. He says he is going to take me to a christening with him at St. Ives. Then we shall go somewhere else to such a nice place where I shall be so happy, but I am not to tell anyone where I am going or write to anyone for some time, as he does not want anyone to know where I am. You must not be surprised if you miss me for some weeks, but you shall have the first letter I write to anyone. Edmund says I shall not want for money, and if it's five pounds, I shall have it. And I shall be so happy. Red flag. Red flag! Yeah, they're waving and flapping in the wind, and she's just going on and on about christenings at St. Ives and going into the countryside. I mean, <sighs> yes, it's, it's like parents saying, well, you know, the dog went off to live at a farm. I'll be so happy. <laughs> Prancing around with the other maids of all work. So she also mentioned that when she left the Pook household, things between her and Mary Pook weren't entirely smooth, wasn't, wasn't really great, that relationship. There'd been some tension or issue that may have caused her to leave before she had planned to, and she was worried that that issue might affect her relationship with Edmund. If his mother hated her, she might not want her son to marry this woman. Well, girl, really. Yes. Young, young lady. Young lady. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, that's like a, that's been a common theme for hundreds of years is where your mother-in-law does not enjoy your company. So. I'm lucky I have a mother-in-law who sends me, you know, like recipes and, and jokes and stuff. And I realized scrolling back through our conversation that she sent me the banana candle a couple months ago. <laughs> No, but it was just the banana. It didn't have the dripping. It was just the banana with the, the dripping. Is really what makes it though. It really is. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, she's worried about this, but she's kind of reassuring herself because this isn't the first time that somebody in the Pook family has been in a relationship with somebody of a different class. Ooh, a scandal! Yes, I know. There, this one actually ended in marriage. Edmund's older brother Thomas had married a dressmaker's apprentice. And Mrs. Pook came around eventually, so she was kind of thinking, well, maybe everything will be okay. It might be a little rough at first, but then we'll be fine. Let's skip ahead to three days later, after this little lovely post-tea wander. 
and somebody else is wandering, and that is a police constable. Well, he's less wandering than patrolling, but still, I made the connection. <laughs> a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Yeah, sure. It is 4.15 a.m. on a Wednesday morning. This is his, he does a, a, a whole loop. You know, he has his routine, the areas that he checks, and just follows that same loop over and over again. And so at this point, he was out on the Lover's Lane, 4.15 a.m., most of the canoodling couples in the hedges or wherever had, had fled to bed by that point, either by themselves or with each other. So he's not going to find any, you know, anybody out there, you know, getting it. I wonder if he waited. Do you think he waited? Like, was waiting to see? No, like, waited until they stopped oh. doing the things. And he's like, I'm not going to walk around until after three because most of them will have gone home by then. Perhaps. It's entirely possible. <laughs> He's just like, let them have their fun. And also, it's so awkward when the dude's naked. <laughs> yeah, just see like a lily white ass bouncing up and down. <laughs> Nobody needs that. Yeah, right? Now, Kidbrook Lane, where he was on his beat, was very muddy in the spring, but it did have a footpath that hooked up to it that tended to be drier. So this constable is on his second go-round, and he sees a bundle of clothes on the path. And then he sees that the bundle of clothes is moving. And he realized this is a human being. It's a person. Now, I would think this would be a pants-shitting moment, especially considering that he doesn't even have his lantern on. He's just basically doing the route by muscle memory in the pitch dark of a back lane. But he just thinks it's another drunk. So she's got her back to him, she's prone on the ground, and then she manages to push herself up onto her hands and knees, and she's crawling. And so he goes to her to question her, and she says, oh my poor head, oh my poor head. Now the more he sees, the worse it gets. First he sees some blood on her cheek, starts to grow concerned, then... He sees the other side, which I will leave it to Mr. Murphy to describe for you. Several gashes were cloven into her skull. Her left cheek was slashed open and smashed in. Her right eye was destroyed, and above it, a chunk of the temporal bone had been bashed out, leaving a hole from which her brain clearly protruded. This is a woman who has been viciously, viciously attacked. So then she falls to the ground and she says, let me die. He takes a quick gander at the scene. He sees a pool of blood a few feet away. There's some footprints in the mud. And yes, there is a severely injured woman at his feet, so his first thought should be getting her medical attention, but it was kind of a good thing that he took a look around because the crime scene would turn into a total shit show in just a few hours, of course. As it does. So he figured that where the pool of blood was located was where the actual crime occurred. And he put it together that she fell, was left for dead, and only managed to crawl those few feet. Now he'd been through that way a couple hours ago and hadn't seen her. But later, just judging by the blood clotting, they figured that she was there from four to five hours before being discovered. 
That's a long time to lay in a cold, muddy lane. Yeah, well, she was probably unconscious for a good bit of it. Yeah, you're probably right. There are also some clothes next to her, gloves and a bonnet. The gloves are even nicely arranged. There's one glove slipped into the other. You, like, like some people pair socks. Weird people. No, I'm a, I'm a top flipper. I'm a top flipper. Yes. It's just the best way. It's satisfying in some weird way. I can't explain it. And also it helps me to know whether there's one sock or two. Because frequently there's just one sock. <laughs> and that's going to make finding socks a hell of a lot harder. And the black bonnet is embroidered with three pretty red roses across the front. It sounds lovely. The constable picks her up. He puts her on the side of the road in case any vehicles should pass through. And then he dashes off to find help. He finds his sergeant who sticks around the scene and takes a look while the constable then goes trying to find some other police to help take the body to the doctor. They'd managed to get her to Guy's Hospital Around 7.15 a.m. It took three hours to get her there. Yeah. Somebody invent the ambulance. I beg you. She gets there and it's not looking good, as you may have guessed from the description. They have to take pieces of bone out of her skull, which, uh, lucky for her, she was totally unconscious at this point anyhow. That could have been from the blood loss and or the, the lacerations on her brain from the bone fragments. You know, that's a column A, column B situation. Yeah. So they discovered three major wounds. One above her left ear, one above the right eye, the one that was destroyed, and her upper lip and jaw also. And there were other smaller wounds that showed she'd been hit with whatever weapon her attacker used a dozen or more times. And they surmised, they didn't have a whole lot of evidence, but they surmised that a lot of these blows had come after she'd dropped to the ground. Which means that someone had some rage. Yeah, he was still going. Like, she's on the ground, injured, bleeding, and you're still just going nuts. Mm-hmm. And there also, of course, are defensive wounds. Regarding the weapon, the attacker had used something sharp and with a nice heft to it in order to inflict wounds like the major ones, but they didn't know just what yet. They said there was no signs of sexual assault, but there was a bruise on her right thigh that was pretty recent. Like, the day before, the afternoon before-ish. That raised a few questions that were never really answered in any substantial way. So they guessed her age to be between 23 and 25. And they could tell she was in the servant class by the condition of her hands and knees. I always find that interesting how our bodies are so telling or can be so telling of our occupations. Oh, yeah. Like in the case, uh, I cannot for the life of me remember the name, but the man who was a masseuse. And had incredibly smooth hands because of, you know, constantly using like oils and rubbing. So they hope to learn more about the attack from her in the event that she wakes up. They do keep a watch on her, but they really don't think she's going to survive this attack beyond a few days. Then they decide, well, let's take a look at the personal effects. So her clothes were what they called the walking out clothes that a girl might wear when going out to walk the street, not walk the streets in that way, you know, but 
to go for a walk in town. Now, these would be hemmed shorter than other dresses so as not to get dirty or muddy in the streets and lanes. And this is Victorian times. There, there are those stereotypes that we sometimes lean on to, or myths, whatever you want to call them, about not showing ankle. That they, they would show ankle. Um, in, in these, in a walking dress. I know, right? It's so bony. They would show ankle in a walking dress, a bathing suit, or if you were in the class who could afford such pursuits in hunting and sporting dresses. Hunting dresses. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, okay. I must put on my hunting dress. Fetch me my hunting dress, maid. Regarding color, I found this from a site on costuming. The 1872 Ladies' Book of Etiquette and Manual of Politeness states that a walking out dress should be, quote, of quiet colors and never conspicuous. Browns. Moods? Nudes. Is it nudes? It must be nudes. It must be nudes. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I was like, what did I type? Browns, nudes, and neutral tints with black and white make the prettiest dresses for the street. There's some etiquette and politeness for you. Yes, yes. I vote for nudes. <laughs> you always vote for nudes. And indeed, this victim's walking out dress had been dark brown with a black jacket trimmed with mohair and lace. She had carried a little blue purse. It seemed all totally intact. Nothing seemed to have been taken, so probably motive is not robbery. They found 11 shillings and 4 pence in there. That's about 35 pounds today. As well as a few keys. Her jacket pocket held a handkerchief and a silver locket that was hanging on a blue ribbon. The locket was empty. No picture or anything that might help them lead, you know, to her identity. Now back at the scene, as I said, total shit show. People were just tramping all over the scene as word spread, including the police. You can barely tell which footprints were which, so that was not helpful. Although the sergeant was at least able to figure out that the attacker, judging by the size of the prints, was a man. And he ran from the scene, and it looked at one place like he had slipped and fallen in the mud in his haste. So we're looking for a man with mud. A man with mud. Should be really easy. Yeah, yeah. In springtime, <laughs> in a rainy place. Also found at the scene was a small whistle. Which they just kind of like put that aside and didn't think of it too much for a long period of time. But just remember the whistle because that'll come back. Rape whistle. <laughs> the next day, they find the weapon. Well, not they. A gardener at a college one and a half miles from the crime scene. He finds a lathing hammer. Now, think a regular hammer. You know, just pound some nails into the wall. But instead of the, those notches for yanking out nails on the back, you have a sharp axe head for cutting into walls and stuff. And it was on a 16-inch handle. They were pretty sure this was the murder weapon, Due to the blood and hair on the axe, that kind of gave it away a little bit. It usually does. It usually does give it away when you have uh, random things popping up covered in hair and blood. When somebody has just been uh, brutally attacked. Yeah. They managed to track down the manufacturer of the hammer 
and then they track that brand of hammer to the only local ironmonger's shop that sold them. Now, this was Samuel Thomas's mechanical tool warehouse run by Samuel and his wife, Jane. The police go. They ask them, you know, had they sold any of these hammers lately? They do find in their records that they'd sold that model on April 22nd, three days before the attack on a Saturday evening. But they don't write down names. There's no personal details of the purchaser. And neither Samuel nor Jane can even remember who they sold it to. Not a single memory, nothing. They are blank slates. Well, you have to imagine running a shop and how many people you'd see in a day selling things. It'd be impossible to just go through your memory and be like, oh, I remember three days ago, this gentleman was wearing a checkered shirt. You're not going to remember that. I don't remember what I did three minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very true. If you're constantly having a very similar interaction over and over again, they're just going to blend together. Well, and then uh, to that point, so like anyone that's worked in retail or food service can, can probably vouch for this, is people don't look at you, and then after a while, you stop looking at them too. Mm -hmm. And so you're not really even directly looking at the people you're talking to. You're just like, oh, here's this thing you're buying. Here's the money. Okay, here's your change. Bye. You kind of stop recognizing the human interaction part of it after a while. Yeah, because you go on autopilot. Yeah. You know, you're just performing a job and doing the same task over and over again, or the same set of tasks. And so you can just kind of let your brain go elsewhere. Yeah. That's dangerous sometimes, though, because I do that while driving and have no recollection of me driving place to place. But I've also accidentally gone to the wrong place on <laughs> autopilot. <laughs> One of these days, it's going to be two o'clock, and I'm going to be like, where's Amber? And it turns out you went to, like, Denny's. <laughs> well, no, like, so I drive past your house all the time when I'm supposed to come here mm -hmm. because my parents live a few houses up the road. And so, like, I will autopilot to their house <laughs> without even thinking about it. And then I'll just turn around in their driveway and come back down here like I meant to do that. Yeah, the human brain can go on autopilot so easily. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not surprised that Samuel and Jane were not able to recollect what was an entirely ordinary interaction among many similar ordinary interactions. Exactly. One thing the police do find is that there were purchases made that day by other customers, and there are entries in the sales records, so they do hold out hope that someone else saw the attacker buy the hammer and perhaps remembers it. Thus, they advertise four eyewitnesses to the purchase of the hammer at that shop on that day. The newspapers reported that while the currently nameless victim was in the hospital, she said all kinds of things, and they especially loved to report names she might have said. So some of the names, Mary Smith, Emily, Ned, Edward, Sarah. An interesting collection of names. Mm-hmm. They have people come through and look at her clothes at the police station and at the, the woman at the hospital in an attempt to get an identification. There are actually several people, at least a few, who think that it might be someone they know, but her face is just unrecognizable at this point because of all the damage. And as for the clothes, they seem to be common enough that some people mistake the clothes for those of a missing person they know. So this is not really helping with identification. 
And as the days, you know, drag on, there's also sort of this tension in the air as everyone waits for answers or even no answers because no answers will also tell them something. Murphy puts it like this. If the woman remained unidentified, that must be because she had severed all connections with polite society. She had, in other words, crossed that moral line defined so clearly and absolutely for a woman in English society in 1871. She had fallen. Recently, obviously, she had been a humble servant, respectable in her sphere, but she must have made the fatal decision to trade honest labor for the dubious pleasures of a life of vice, a life once chosen, all respectable Victorians believed, entailed a bitter and inevitable path of degradation, disease, and death. So essentially, they're waiting to hear whether they should give a shit or not. Oh, yeah. Was this a hooker? It might have been a hooker. Unfortunately, that uh, attitude still prevails today. And that's why that's a more vulnerable population. But I did uh, appreciate his writing there. There's, there's a lot of good writing. I recommend this book to anybody who is, uh, wants to know more about this case. So just as a side note, there'll be a link in the show notes with my sources. And the papers are getting things mucked up as well, sort of making everything real hazy for everybody. They're publishing speculation about a pair of sisters, one of whom got into sex work following the whole fallen woman storyline that they just loved and hated so much. The other, who had dumped a good guy for a soldier, who apparently soldiers were not great then, and then just disappeared. It's really hard to verify whether these stories are accurate as to anyone in particular, or if they're just entirely made up, which they sometimes did, for funsies, I guess. You're under pressure for a story that'll sell, and you're like, well, let's make some shit up. Yeah. Speaking of mucking things up, there's also the crowds of sightseers descending upon the scene. And with sightseers come footprints and also mementos. They take, you know, a little bit of mud, a twig, anything they can grab. Murphy notes that someone put a cross up at the scene and then someone else stole it as a memento. Yep, that sounds about right. Isn't that nice? And after thousands of people visited, the only thing that really survived was actually the blood, that, that pool of blood where she was thought to have been attacked. Murphy, uh, quote, amazingly still visible in defiance of rain showers the night before. It's almost got that supernatural aspect. Ooh, spooky. Now, people would continue to visit for over a month. This was a big attraction. In fact, the very first Bank holiday, Whit Monday, was one month and four days after the murder. Do you know how many people came on that day alone? I'm scared. Do you want to guess? Um, 150,000. You always go overboard because you know. Yeah, like I feel <laughs> like I had to go overboard. 29,000. That's still a lot of people. That is a ton of people. It was just, just packed, crammed people in there. There still are no answers about the identification of either the victim or the attacker. And after four days, she still had no name when she died the evening of Sunday, April 30th. So now this assault has turned into a murder. And so, of course, it's autopsy time. Now the doctor performing the autopsy, he found a little surprise. Very little. Very little surprise. Uh, a Two-month-old 
baby. Well, not baby, fetus at this point. And uh, she was two months along. Had probably come up with a little bit of a surprise to the victim as well. Now, somebody else who's in for a surprise is William Trott, the uncle of Jane Maria Colson. This has been big news in the community, but he'd managed to avoid reading or hearing any description of the victim until the evening of Sunday, April 30th, the very night she died. And so it is that he's able to identify her as his niece, Jane Colson. It's everything. It all, the, the description of her appearance, her outfit. She'd worn that outfit the previous Sunday when she came for tea. Her walking out dress and her bonnet. One of the reasons he might not have been as curious about this case is because they had gotten the age so wrong. They said 23 to 25. She actually had turned 17 on the 28th while unconscious from the attack, and then died two days later. So William and his wife Elizabeth, who is the sister of Jane's deceased mother, they decide they have to go and find out for sure, so they take a photograph of Jane that they had, and went to identify her, along with a cousin Charlotte, who I think was also in her teens as well, and was a very, very close confidant of Jane's, she had to identify her friend, her cousin and friend, whose head had been bashed in, essentially. The face was so mangled that they had to request to see a birthmark on her breast in order to confirm it. Show me your moles. Yes, let's see the moles. They filled the police in on Jane's history and what they know of her relationship with Edmund Pook. They also mentioned the locket Jane had said he'd given her. And so that's kind of a possible connection there. Although none of them had ever actually seen Edmund and Jane together. Nobody has really seen visual proof of this relationship. They've only heard about it from her. They also tell the police about another servant girl Edmund might have been spending time with, Mary Smith. Which, it's strange that that name was one of the names that was supposedly she said at some point while she was, you know, fighting for her life. And now, at this point, there had been four days of no identification, so the papers were just speculating left and right, and of course, you know, you had the idea that it was these two young ladies, one of whom had fallen into sex work, and so now William Trott has to clear that up because he's afraid that the public and the media will think that Jane was a sex worker, that they'll just get confused. Yeah, and if they think that, then they're not going to care anymore. Exactly. The police start talking to people who knew Jane. They find out some more about her mood and how she was kind of despondent until just four days prior to the attack. They find out from Emily, that roommate and fellow servant, that Jane got a letter the Friday before her attack, and it just seemed to turn her whole attitude around. She was happy and excited and just, just thrilled as she read this letter. And then she tore it up and burned the scraps. So it's something she wants to keep secret. She did respond to the letter, but that remains a mystery. Emily also tells the police that she knew Jane 
had plans to meet up with someone on Tuesday night, the night of the attack, but she didn't have any further details. So someone who had some more details was Emily's landlady, Fanny Hamilton. They had gone out running errands the Tuesday of the meeting, and basically Jane told her, I'm going to go meet Edmund Pook at 7 p.m., and we're going to map out our brilliant, wonderful future together where I'm anything but a servant and he takes care of me and everything's going to be wonderful and there's a christening at St. Ives. And just a few minutes after that, she ran off to her meeting. So with this information in hand, the police go to the Pook's house. They're kind of eager to get this ball rolling here because they want that element of surprise, you know? So first they talk to Ebenezer, Edmund's father. They're kind of trying to worm their way into getting him to cooperate and help them out a little bit. And Ebenezer tells them, well, you know, Jane left, but it wasn't because she was going to go work at a factory. We fired her because she was a dirty girl and not in a naughty, fun way. And so then they talk to Edmund. And they learn that Edmund is a good boy, not one to be running around murdering servant girls, especially considering his epilepsy. The family said, well, we have to have someone watching him at all times in case he has a seizure. Which, to me, brought up the question of, was that ever one of Jane's duties as a maid? You know, everybody else in the family is busy, so they just kind of push Edmund into whatever room she's cleaning and say, hey, keep an eye on him. You know, yell if if he starts having a seizure. I mean, she's their only servant. Yeah, it would make sense. Or even if it's like, okay, well, he's going to go to bed. You follow him in there and just watch him, make sure he doesn't. Yeah, there you go. But the family is very, very adamant that there was no such relationship and that they would have absolutely known, especially in those cramped quarters. They're talking to Edmund, and they break the news that their very recently former maid of all work was the murdered girl who had been the talk of the town. And his response to this information is, well, she was a dirty girl and left in consequence. Those are his words. Wow. Her employer, prior to the pooks, later refutes this in the press. Quote, I believe a cleaner, more civil, or quieter girl never could be inside a house. And he also called her clean and respectable. Wow. So they are... Asking Edmund some questions. Where were you? Do you know her? And he says, I haven't even seen her since she quit, like, two weeks ago. And then he's like, oh, wait, yes, no, I did see her. I saw her in town with a gent. Scandal. Clutch those pearls. As for his whereabouts the day of the attack, he said he'd been at work until 7, which he worked in the family's printing shop. And after that, he went for a walk. He was going to visit a lady, and the police were happy to let her remain unnamed. Good, good. Because I bet at that point she was no longer a lady friend and also did not want anyone to know her name. Yeah, she'll, she'll pop back up, don't you worry. We'll find out her name. But uh, he didn't actually see her. He just creeped outside her house and watched it for 40 minutes. Ew. Yeah, I don't, I don't like it. And the thing was... And the police are like, okay, that's cool. As long yeah, as you were there. Much. Yeah. So it starts off with this whole idea of I don't go anywhere alone. I'm a homebody. I, I don't, you know, my epilepsy kind of keeps me bound to my family. 
And then very quickly we have, I was solo stalking this lady's house in a way that's absolutely not predatory or gross, and nobody saw me. He just goes out for walks and, and goes and creeps on ladies and doesn't have anybody there to make sure he's not having a seizure while he's creeping on a lady, apparently. Yeah, seems legit. Yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking there's already some conflicting information that this family is giving at this point. His older brother, Thomas, corroborated that, you know, as, as far as he knew, Edmund had gone to that lady's house Tuesday night, returned around 9 p.m., quote, as usual. So he gets off work at 7, and he generally comes home around 9. It seems like he's out and about all the damn time. Yeah, it really does. So looking at a map from his house, the Pook household, uh, to the place where Jane said they were going to meet, then up to the place where she was found, which is a, a further distance away, is about 2 hours and 20 minutes round trip walking. Now, the, their house to Lewisham, which is where he was creeping on the lady, it, I didn't, there wasn't an exact address, so I just put in Lewisham, <laughs> is a little over an hour round trip walking, add in 40 minutes of creeping, and you've got something close to the two hours that his brother said he was gone. But his mother's cousin, the one who lived in the house and shared a, a rooming situation with the servant, later claimed that he came home around 9.30. So conflicting information all over the place. And he could have been doing either of those things. Separate witnesses came forward and said that they saw or heard a man and a woman near Kidbrook Lane between 8.30 and 9. There were questions as to what they heard. Some of them heard sounds like maybe arguing. Some of them heard sounds like maybe screaming. There was one really hilarious bit where they were questioning these witnesses and it had been a, a young lady and a young man out walking. They didn't really know each other, but they seemed to be out walking down the lover's lane. And they said that they had heard uh, some loud noises emitting from a woman. And the police asked, or whoever was interrogating, asked for clarification. And the lady said, you know how when you get with a woman, she screams. But does he? <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Thomas, the older brother, also confirmed that Edmund had told him he'd seen Jane around town. In Thomas's version, Jane was with a swell. Oh, a swell. He was with a swell. The police ask for the clothes that Edmund had worn on Tuesday night, and he hands them over. They see what might be small spots of blood on his shirt and hat and on his trousers. And so they arrest him on suspicion of murder. And he's pretty chill when all this is happening. He's like, can I bring a book? I'm going to get bored. It's either that or I sing, you know, 99 bottles of beer on the wall and annoy the hell out of your guard. So pick one. I feel like that's a really good threat to get a book. Yeah. I will sing the entirety of 99 bottles of beer, and then I will start over and do it in a falsetto. Yes, absolutely. 99 bottles of beer. Oh, God. No. <laughs> no, no. 
I feel like that's the type of person I would be if you put me in prison, though, and you like you didn't give me a book or anything to do. I'm gonna, I'm going to find new and interesting ways to annoy the shit out of everybody within earshot. And then the guards will find new and interesting ways to beat you silly. Maybe I like that kind of thing. You do actually. I've seen you get whipped. So <laughs> <laughs> he's uh now in the UK. There's a thing called caution against self-incrimination, which is fairly similar to some of the other things we have in the Miranda warning over here. It became the legal norm, as Murphy explained in 1912. This is many years before that, but even at this point, it's, it's expected. And if you did not give that caution against self-incrimination, you could run into some trouble come trial time. Just like if you don't give the Miranda warning here, you can run into some trouble because they can make things inadmissible. One big problem with this case as they move along is that, like we said, a lot of this is hearsay. Nobody had seen Edmund and Jane together in any way that gave away that they were in a relationship. And so that's a problem. The scheduled meeting that they were supposed to have on Tuesday night. That's hearsay. She had told her cousin and she had told Fanny Hamilton and that was it. The fact that she was going to run away or whatever. Hearsay. That he'd even given her the locket that was found on her person. Hearsay. Hearsay, I say. Hearsay. <laughs> so they need to find some hard evidence. So it's time to get forensic. Woot woot. They take his clothes to Dr. Henry Letheby, renowned chemist, and he was also a medical officer of health for London. Fancy. Very fancy. And he has a fancy test that he can do that is pretty rare in, in that day, a spectroscopic analysis. This was brand new and shiny, and it's actually still used a lot today on more than just suspected blood. It's used in forensic toxicology, and fiber analysis, and automotive paint analysis. It's very handy because it doesn't destroy the material being tested. So then you still have it. The test verifies that there was blood on the trousers. Dr. Lethby looks at the shirt and the hat and discovers that the spots there are blood as well, but there's a difference between the blood on the shirt and hat and the blood on the trousers, or I have it, as I have in my notes, trouser blood, hmm. which is an oddly disturbing phrase. I don't know why. Well, I mean, if women are used to it, men should be too. Yeah, yeah, agreed. So the blood on the shirt and hat had had some time to coagulate, whereas the blood on the trousers did not, probably because someone had tried to clean it off. Now, it's way too early to be trying to identify the blood type. That's still three decades away, pretty much exactly. Carl Landsteiner would come upon that discovery in Austria in 1901. At this point, we really couldn't even verify whether it was human blood or not. Could be, you know, um, anything. They finally are able to have a funeral for Jane. Thousands line the streets. Despite the rain, she is buried next to her mother. There was a memorial eventually built and financed by public subscription. So people chipped in here. The inscription on it describes the murder and also talks about Jane herself. Quote, she was agreeable in manner, 
amiable and affectionate in disposition. Her last words were, oh, let me die. Poor girl. I know. But those weren't her last words. And I kind of hate that that that's what they made it. But she was talking in the hospital and giving names. That's a lot of... um, Hearsay. It's a lot of hearsay. And it's also a lot of speculation because the, the doctor said... The papers may have said that, but we didn't hear a damn thing. She didn't say anything from the time she was brought in. So it very well could have been, oh, let me die, were her last words. It could have been, but it also might not have been. Yeah, it goes it goes either way, but they definitely went for the, the more dramatic of the two. Oh, let me die. There are still flowers put at the base of the memorial, generally brought by the organization Women Against Violence Expressing Solidarity, also known as WAVES. But back in 1871, it was inquest time. So here are some of the main takeaways from the coroner's inquest determining whether to indict Edmund Pook for this murder. His lawyer, Henry Pook, who supposedly has no relation, but I don't buy that. No relation, sure. Sure. Lives nearby, Yeah, same last name. It's not Smith, you know? So... He's quite the volatile chap. He gets cited for threatening police and, you know, having explosions in court and such. We also have a man coming forward claiming he gave the locket to Jane. And this is confirmed, or at least his purchase of it is confirmed by the jeweler's daughter who sold it to him. This is Henry Humphreys. He is a married 30-year-old. So that kind of contradicts the story that Charlotte told of Jane saying that Edmund gave her the locket. The Thomases of the Ironmonger shop discover another entry in the sales records that they missed. The exact hammer was also sold on April 24th, one day before the murder. And the earlier purchaser of the hammer from their records that they had looked at before came forward and he's like, I still got mine. No blood, no hair on it. I'm good. It's not me. Look, (laughs) wasn't me. Yeah. The murder weapon was sold on the 24th and the people they'd had identify Edmund as the person who bought the hammer earlier because they did have a few people that they managed to dig up who had been in the store that day are incorrect. It wasn't even him buying it that day. It was a totally different dude. So then uh, we discover even the forensic evidence has some holes. You would think, gosh, you know, we got forensic evidence in 1871. Slam dunk, right? Maybe not. Maybe not. The defense attorney cross-examines Dr. Letheby, who admits that the blood on Edmund's shirt could have come from any sort of injury he got during a seizure. Letheby does get the last word on that. When he says that he wouldn't think, quote, blood from a self-inflicted wound would appear on the hat of the patient. Yeah, because he was trying to say that he, like, bit his tongue during a seizure and that's where all the blood came from. Yeah, yeah, it, it's going to be hard to put that blood to fly up onto your hat. And also to get that much blood on you from biting your tongue. Yes, yeah, that as well. Although I guess if you were holding your hat, then gravity can do its thing. But you would think at some point he would say, well, I was holding my hat and we never get that. Yeah, but okay. so correct me if I'm wrong here, because I'm thinking seizure, fall down. Gravity would go like down the sides of your face. 
Yeah, not on your shoes and trousers and shirt and sleeves and hat. And well, sleeves could be once you come back to like maybe wiping your mouth. Yeah, but still, I I feel like the the. But trousers is definitely like where where'd that come from? <laughs> yeah, and the amount of blood that you would get in biting your tongue. Well, it was just spots of blood that they found on the clothing. It wasn't anything. It wasn't like he had like drenched clothing or anything like that. There were there were tiny spots. And this this is well before they do like the splatter analysis, which even that is questionable. That's a whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> we're not going to get into because it's not even of the time. And, and here we are trying to do blood. Sp- bladder analysis it, or perhaps entirely faulty field of pseudoscience and we don't know what we're talking about either well because if there's spots it couldn't be a wipe of the mouth that would be more of a smear. Be a smear so yeah but it's also over 100 years old and secondhand information third-hand information true yeah so then the whistle comes up back into the foreground here when Alice Durnford, Durnford rolls right off the tongue. That's going to be a rough one. Alice Durnford comes forward. She is a former lover of Edmunds. And she tells police that he used to come out to her house and call her with a whistle. Like a dog. Oh, man. Yep. They, you know, kind of light bulb dings above the head there when they're like whistle we forgot about the whistle and so edmund has thomas look for his whistles back at home because he does have some whistles thomas finds two one of which is nearly identical to the one that the police found so perhaps he has three whistles and lost one the inquest verdict comes back with a majority saying that the cause of death was at edmund's hands so that's enough to send him to trial And, of course, the trial is a big to-do. This is even more of a to-do than we normally get because there was this class divide between the victim and the defendant. And so people are really taking sides based on their class to the extent that they had names. There were Pookites and Klausenites. Wow. Pookites. 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 Okay. That sounds like something you don't want to fly on a windy day. I do not. <laughs> trying to imagine tying a string around that. Yeah, yeah, no, let's not, let's not do that. That's a bad idea. So the middle and upper classes actually collected 200 pounds for his defense. That is 12,500 pounds today. And back then, with that money, you could have bought 13 horses or 37 cows. Jesus, that's a lot of cows. I, I have another uh, typo here, but I knew it was horses, but I have houses. <laughs> so, nudes and horses are things I apparently cannot type sometimes. And Lady Godiva had come up in conversation the other day, and this is just full circle back to it. Nudes and, and horses. Nudes and horses, yeah. She was she was fond of, of being nude on horses. Well, and to just to loop it in a little bit more, uh, I fell down a rabbit hole, and uh, the phrase Peeping Tom actually comes from the legend of Lady Godiva. Really? Yeah. So she rode through town to protest uh, her husband taxing people, and her husband had told everybody not to look, and there was one person that still looked, a man by the name of Tom. 
And so that is supposedly where the phrase peeping Tom comes from. Huh. That is fascinating. Yeah. I fell down a rabbit hole. It happens. You're learning where peeping Tom comes from. I'm learning where Molotov cocktail comes from. I think this is supposed to be reversed. Did you send that to me or did I find that on my own? I put it in the group chat. Okay. Okay. Because I saw that and I couldn't remember where I saw that. So, okay. That was you. And just in case anybody's curious, I know this is a digression, but it's from uh, when the, the Russians were attacking Finland. And, but they said they, they weren't dropping bombs, they were dropping uh, food. And the Finns started calling them uh, Molotov red baskets because Molotov was a high figure in Russian government during that time. And I believe he was the one who said that too, that they were just dropping food. And so they, they made Molotov cocktails as a, a drink to go with dinner. Yeah. Delightful. Delightful. I love it. I love Finns now. <laughs> I had never thought to think of where did that come from, and then there it is. So so back to the trial and the Pukites and the Klausenites. Edmund is totally calm throughout this. The opening statements are given. The prosecution reads letters that Edmund had sent to two other women. One was his aunt, as he was trying to marry her daughter, Yes, that would be his cousin. Ew. Ew. Yep, yep. And that was at the same time that he was seeing Alice Dunsford. Hmm. I have Dernford above and Dunsford. This is what happens when I research in the bath because my back is just horrific. <laughs> like, But he, so he's just like running around and sleeping with everybody and then trying to marry his cousin. Yes, yes. Also that, yeah. He's a good guy. Good guy right there. Yeah. So a point that is raised for reasonable doubt, going back to the blood, is that Edmund's clothes weren't as bloody as they should have been. Given the, the ferocity and viciousness of this attack and head wounds, those would have been you know, pretty bloody and spurty and they just have spots of blood. Bloody and spurty. Bloody and spurty. The prosecution also has a really big problem on their hands and that's that they can't introduce the testimony of... Jane talking about her relationship with Edmund because it's hearsay. Yep. And that also includes if she did actually speak while in her coma in the last days of her life, anytime she possibly named her attacker, like, say, Ned. So a lot of their information that they got from witnesses who talked to her or heard her is just completely not even usable. It's a mess of a case, and it has been since the very beginning. The defense attorney, he does a really good job of eviscerating even the forensic evidence. And he's got help because the chief justice is clearly on the defense's side. It's amazing. Like they, I, I think they are allowed to be more partial towards one side or the other. And their summing up of the case to the jury before they go to deliberate tends to fall wherever their opinion lies. It's, it's not neutral at all. At least in these times, I don't know how it is now. But it was really, really clear that he was like, the prosecution sucks, the police suck. You guys all fucked this up. Right. The, the witnesses, he even, he even slammed the witnesses that, they, that the prosecution brought. He's just slamming the witnesses. He's like a disappointed dad. Really? Do better. Do better. And so it just keeps on getting worse and worse and worse. So, for instance, they find an eyewitness who claims that he saw Edmund at the Thomas's shop on the day before the murder buying the hammer. Said witness claims that he was there to buy nails, a specific kind of nails, 
But then it comes out that they don't even sell that kind of nails at the Thomas's shop. Oh, so he tried to get real creative and real descriptive and didn't do his homework. Exactly. Yes, yes. Always do your homework. Now, this is, uh, this is fun. Something I haven't really seen before. The prosecution finishes putting on its case, and so then the defense stands up for um, their opening statement. And the attorney tells the jury that they have every right to just stop the trial. Anytime they want, they can just stand up, say that they think Edmund is not guilty, and just put an end to this whole farce. And actually, they are allowed to interrupt. And they do. Right in the middle of his speech, they say, okay, well, we just want to state that we've decided we're going to disregard the evidence from the eyewitness who bought the nails that aren't even sold there. We think that guy's a liar, so we're just scrapping that too. The defense attorney even got a goddamn round of applause after his opening statement. Oh, Rihanna. I know, right? He calls over two dozen witnesses. And since the defense had chosen not to present pretty much any of its own evidence or witnesses at the coroner's jury because they figured this was going to go to trial, and so we'll keep that element of surprise, they had basically like two dozen aces up their sleeves because the prosecution didn't know what was coming. They do that thing that I hate, that, that, that is the time, when I see this happening, I always wonder how they sleep at night. Some, everybody deserves a competent defense, but dear God, I hate it when they talk shit on the victim, and they let people talk shit on the victim, and they elicit this, and they intentionally are trying to provoke this. They are having the Pook family call Jane dirty. Uh, his mother won't say her name, just refers to her as, quote, the girl. Edmund even has more witnesses that place him around Alice, that former lover, her house the evening of the murder, lurking like a creep. So apparently people did see him, even though he said, I saw no one except for one hired boy who he didn't see me, which is a little sus. Yeah, I saw nobody. And then like, just, all right, tell him, tell him you saw me in the bushes. Yeah. Yeah. Here's, here's, here's five a few pounds. shillings. Yeah. <laughs> The Chief Justice does his summing up. Do you want to guess how long it is? I love guessing games. Was there lunch? I mean, I don't really know if they if they broke at any point during the summing up or not. All right. I'm going to say an hour and 20 minutes. Six and a half. Really? Six and a half hours long. This judge ranted and raved about how the prosecution sucked and the police sucked and the witnesses sucked. And that who, who knows? Is, maybe Jane sucked too. That is an epic rant. That's, like, bigger than Scott and the Raisins. Yeah, right? And the Chief Justice also got applause. Probably because he stopped fucking talking after six hours. <laughs> they were like, yes, thank God! Thank you. <laughs> you finally shut up. So I guess, actually, they probably, it probably wouldn't have mattered. It would have been more of a dinner break than a lunch break because it was 8.40 p.m. when the jury went to deliberate on a Saturday night in July. Ew. Yes. That is not how I want to spend my July Saturday nights. These people spent six and a half hours listening to the Chief Justice sum up the case. And uh, how much time did they spend deliberating? After a six-hour rant? Yeah. Oh, God, 20 minutes. They want to go home. Exactly, yes. 20 minutes. They came back at <laughs> nine. <laughs> They're ready to go home. They're done with this shit. And it's a not guilty. There's more applause and cheering and general merriment in the courtroom. But outside, 
is where the classes of a lower order had gathered to await the verdict. You only could get inside if you were dressed nicely. Oh. You had to be of the right class to even come and watch this court case. And so that's that's a more negative mood. Uh, they, they burn Edmund in effigy. So they're they're not super happy. And there will still be some people saying that he's a murderer and even printing it in pamphlets, which leads to two libel suits that Edmund Pook brings in the future for people writing that he's a murderer. Now, he went on to marry. He outlived his wife and died in Croydon in 1920. I doubt that any time between that April day in 1871 and his death in 1920 that he ever went to Kidbrook Lane to see if it was true that Jane's ghost wandered in the footpath, dressed in white, even though she was in brown when she was attacked, and covered in blood, screaming and groaning for help. We cannot go see that ghost because she finally got some rest when they paved over the footpath. So there's a couple aspects of this I want to talk about. The two months pregnant thing. I was, I was just, that was kind of a sticking point for me. That Would she have even known? For sure. I mean. She would have suspected. She would have at least suspected. But she, keep in mind, her mother died when she was 12. Did she ever get the talk? Did she have any idea that she should be like keeping an eye on how many weeks have passed in between her periods, especially if she's had sex? Or was it just kind of like, you you know, you see blood one day and you're like, oh, it's back. Okay. You know, like knowledge of the, the female body, even by the owners of them, not super <laughs> great back then. No, but like, because I, I was also thinking of like the, the being really mopey and crying all the time until she got a letter that she was going to meet Edmund or whoever and and then her like perking up right away and i was thinking like ah oh, that's pregnancy hormones whether she knew it or not it very well could have been pregnancy hormones or it could have been circumstances it could have been circumstances as well so yeah there is the possibility that she didn't even know that she was pregnant but she seemed to be very very excited to get married mm-hmm. which if she did realize she was pregnant that would be a big driving force because she'd be relieved well you're already in a lower class and if you're an unwed mother in that class... That pushes you down even further. Exactly. So she would want to get married, and then marrying somebody of a higher status would bump her status up, and also she would not have to exist as an unwed mother. And she would have more uh, resources to be able to take care of her child. Yeah. So yeah, there, there's definitely that question there. I don't, I don't know, but I just thought about the fact that her mother died when she was... Probably a couple years off from getting her period. They got them a, a little later back then. We've started getting them earlier in the modern ages, the modern days, the modern ages. And so, like, would she have known? How much knowledge did she have? What, did anybody tell her? Or did she just kind of, you know, maybe chat about it with her friends and they told her, you know, use a bunch of cloth? And <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. And nobody told her, hey, keep an eye, make sure four weeks is, you know, coming in between every cycle. So, yeah, it's it's weird. Um, I thought maybe, you know, there's the possibility that she could just be despondent because she was waiting for some kind of reaction to him. And so 
we don't know what the letter said that she got, but it seemed positive. And so he, you know, she sent him a letter setting up their meeting and or agreeing to meet him. And he decided to murder her to get rid of this problem, be it the fact that she was pregnant, which is a, a much stronger motive than if he didn't know she was pregnant. But I think she could have possibly been waiting for news or some sort of reaction from him regarding the pregnancy. That's just my theory. Okay, so on top of this, we have a couple other things. I did see in a newspaper that her sweetheart, Sailor Fletcher, was due to arrive back. Oh, I didn't know that. So one of the newspaper articles actually said that Fletcher was expected back in April. Wow. Which could have thrown Edmund into a rage. Hmm. Because even though he didn't much care for her, he also did not want to share so that was like another little side thing. And I only found that in one article. So I don't know. It's hearsay. It's, it's hearsay. hearsay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely curious. Hmm. Another. Go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I think you and I are going to do the same theory next. Okay. All right. Yes. So um, just a clarification that I, I know that Paul Thomas Murphy has a theory in his book, of some kind. I did not get to it because, again, uh, I'm very much suffering this week and it's hard for me to get anything done. So I don't know what theory he came up with, but m I kind of came up with this idea that ties his epilepsy into it. Why would he, a person who can potentially go into a seizure at any time and maybe even at a moment of stress is more likely to, we don't know for sure, we don't know if he knew that or not, but risk having a seizure while committing a murder. Risk having a seizure running the, the like 1.3 or whatever miles home from the scene of the murder. I mean, maybe he just wasn't thinking, but he was thinking when he bought that lathing hammer, if it was him. So I am thinking that this was a little bit more of a family affair and Thomas was at least with him. That's what I'm thinking. Because he needs to be monitored so that would increase the odds that he might confide in a family member to get help he and thomas were quite close so he needed someone with him and then that person has more reasons on a stack of reasons that already exist to cover up for you you know to to have your back so i my theory is he found out she was pregnant he wrote to her telling her he was going to meet her maybe he didn't decide on the murder until after that but he knew he was going to do something to put an end to this. He bought the hammer. At some point during all this, he told Thomas what was going on. Thomas agreed to help him or maybe suggested that he be there for it. And so maybe they got to a place where Thomas was lying in wait on Kidbrook Lane. And then Edmund proceeded to attempt to murder her. Failed for like four days. But so that's my theory there. All right. So some other possibilities. What if he didn't do it? Because that is one thing I kept going back to is there wasn't enough blood on him to say that he did it. But what if it was somebody else that we didn't necessarily expect, like his new friend, Emily, perhaps? Because wasn't Emily one of the names she said? Emily was one of the names she said. Emily, 
There was an Emily who was a former servant of the Pooks as well, and that was the, the girl that she went to stay with when she left the Pooks. There was an Emily there, yeah. So I don't know if that was like, hey, that's my friend, or maybe it was him and a new girlfriend or lover had had come along to help him and watch him in case he had epilepsy. I don't know. Epilepsy is hearsay as far as I'm concerned. But the, the biggest thing is I think the mother... I kind of think the mother would have been involved in it and would have been the type to get hands on and take care of it because her eldest son already married somebody below their station and that probably made her really mad. And then Edmund would have to do what's right and marry this girl that he impregnated. And she's like, no, you don't need to marry her. And also she doesn't need to be pregnant or alive. Yeah, and I kind of think the mother might have had some some hands-on dealings in that. Interesting. I have this whole whacked-out theory that just popped into my head. Okay, so this is totally off the wall, but... and We're just making shit up as we go here, folks. Literally, yes. I'm, I'm not even saying I believe this theory. It's just a fun theory, so that, that's what I want to do. Okay, so Emily, former servant. Also one of the names that supposedly came out during the, the unconscious period. So let's say Emily knew that Jane had a thing with Edmund. And she decided, because she was jealous, maybe she had had something going on with Edmund when she lived there. So she decided to use fake letters to lure Jane to a point and then murdered her. The only question would be, the meeting place was a ways away from where she was actually found. And so if... Jane arrived at the meeting place and found Emily instead of Edmund. Why would she continue walking all the way, you know? Or even swap Emily out with the Mary Smith. Yeah, the Mary Smith. Yep. Anybody could have decoyed that letter. For me, it's Emily because Emily was the one who handed her the letter that came in the post. So that's... Oh, yes. This just arrived for you today. Yes. yes. And very closely watching her reactions and nobody else would, would know. And then... But... She has to know then that she's setting Edmund up for a fall, but maybe she's just twisted. <laughs> Some people are. Some people are. Yeah, that's well. There theory. was a whole other theory involved in this that I, I did kind of skip over, admittedly, because there's more reason for it not to be true than there is for it to be true. But this was right before Jack the Ripper. No, this was almost 20 years before Jack the Ripper. Well, somebody had made a theory and threw it out onto the internet saying that maybe this was the Ripper's first. <laughs> it's not his M.O. at all, but then again, he did kind of tend to change things up a little bit. If that, That's why there's the question of, are the canonical five even the canonical five with him? I'm double-checking. Or, or, or her, or Jill the Ripper. Um, I'm checking my dates. I believe it was like 1889-ish, 1888 is when it yeah was, was active in 1888. So 17 years prior. I mean, could have been. If, if Jack the Ripper was a young man then and started at that age, or, uh, or maybe Edmund Pook was Jack the Ripper. <gasps> yeah, except Edmund ran with his tail between his legs, because didn't he, like, move away and change his name? Yeah. Yeah. Well, handy to have a different name and not have that previous murder trial attached to you, huh? We've managed to tie it to Jack the Ripper. This is the ultimate goal of every single episode from now on. Oh, God. <laughs> It was the Zodiac Killer. It was Israel Keys. Oh, it was Dahmer. So, yes. 
those are my theories. Uh, some of them are wacky, and I, I claim no ownership over them because they're just weird ideas that popped into my head, which has been a little weird and twisty lately up there. Uh, but it's fun, and I'm enjoying it. So, And we are really, frankly, weird and twisty. Yes, yes, we are. So I have some pubs in the Greenwich area for you. Ooh. If you haven't listened before, whenever we do a case in Britain, I like to look at uh, pubs in the area because they tend to have fun names and sometimes like fun whole themes and whatever. So there's Little Nan's Bar. This is a lounge with cocktails in vases and teapots. Ooh. They also have uh, twisty straws and foil umbrellas and candy bracelets and gummy worms in some of their drinks. I really want to go there. I want a fucking teapot full of booze with gummy worms. That sounds great. That sounds fantastic. I'm going to get myself a glass teapot to call my, my new cocktail drink. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I'm just having tea. It's And it's so innocent when you're sitting there just sipping, sipping your tea. <laughs> And it's booze. <laughs> Doesn't matter what you're drinking as long as you're drinking it out of a teacup. Exactly. Put that pinky up, bitches. There is the yacht, which is not any sort of a boat. I was kind of disappointed by that. That is really disappointing. Is there at least like a nautical theme inside? I didn't really look too much inside because a lot of these pictures show food and I was starting to get hungry. Oh, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. I'm hungry now. It's always a dangerous game that I play. I'm hungry now, too. We're always hungry. Uh, the Slug and Lettuce O2. Ew. I have no idea what's happening there. I just breezed right past that. I was like, we'll just put that name in there. And then after I say it, I can pretend I, I never heard of it or said it. And then my favorite, although I think it needs a slight amendment, The Lost Hour. I just like that as a name for a bar, although it should be plural. Yes. The Lost Hours. Plural. Yes. Yes. yes I like that. So, okay. And I have a recipe for you. Oh, Hooray, let's do this while we're hungry. From this time period. Oh, yeah, and, and speaking of booze. <laughs> so, this is from Warren's Everyday Cookery, containing 1,858 distinct recipes. That's a lot of recipes. And at first I was going to tell you about cockaliki. Ooh. Just because of the name. Cockaliki. Cockaliki, yeah. yeah. Or, or in Scotland it's called cockaliki. But uh, then I found this where they said in Germany... Uh, they like to make soup out of uh, wine or beer. And I was like, okay, well, let's see what this is about. They don't really have a name for it, but I'm going to call it wine soup. Okay. Take a pint of white wine, one and a half pints of water, sweeten it to the taste with sugar, fry one large tablespoonful of flour with a piece of butter until it is very brown, then pour the wine, the wine and water upon it and boil it a few minutes with lemon peel and cinnamon. Then take the yolks of six eggs, beat them well, and add the boiling soup very slowly, stirring it well all the time that it may not curdle. Put a little toasted bread cut very fine into the soup and serve it up hot. So it almost sounds like a really bland egg drop soup. I guess. Yeah. Is that how you make egg drop soup? I just... I, I don't know. Oh. Jackson was like, I'm not interested in that and all. And I'm like, I kind of am. I just want to see like what happens with the egg yolks and the and the wine and the sugar. Take away the cinnamon because that'll kill me. But like everything else, I'm, I'm just very curious how this becomes something that people eat. I'm, I'm more curious to make this than I have been anything that we've discussed so far. And it's definitely a weird combo. Yeah, like I'm, I, I cook with wine all the time. So I'm oh, not sure. opposed to cooking with wine. But I'm trying to think of like... Almost like French braising with egg drop soup. Because in my head, that's what this makes. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's pleasant. 
Yeah, and I don't, I don't, I don't have the flour and... What's the point of the, the one thing of flour and butter? Like, yeah. I don't understand that at all. And there's only one of them. So it's not even like you're making dumplings. You just made one for whatever fucking reason. Oh, and just in case you were curious, kakaliki is basically a large fowl, a marrow bone, beef, water, leeks, and prunes. Just before serving, add half a pound of prunes. Ew. <laughs> that, was, that was really the, the element that got it to the tipping point of, I'll screenshot this and maybe it'll be my recipe. But then I found the wine egg soup and I was like, nope, we're going for the wine egg soup. Yeah, that's because, just weird. yeah, that is not only weird, but it, ch- it should change the title from cock-a-leaky to ass-a-leaky <laughs> because you're about to shit your pants. Yeah, right. <laughs> a half pound of prunes. Yeah, yeah you're going to shit your pants. Yeah, you're going to shit your pants, yeah. <laughs> so. All right. Ooh, okay. That was the story of Jane Colson, as well as some pubs and some weird recipes for you from 1871 or thereabouts. Cockaleaky. Oh, man. So, yeah. I also discovered there's such a thing as scotch pints, which are like a different measurement. It's like four to six quarts or two to three scotch pints. I was like, okay, sure. Let's, let's make shit up. I'm yeah. going to call things whatever I want to. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, uh, don't forget about the Patreon. We mentioned it at the top of the show. Tell a friend. You can rate us on Spotify. You can rate us on wherever you can rate us. Uh, we really appreciate that greatly. And it's totally free. You can do it for absolutely no money. Although you can't do it on the like computer. You have to do it on your phone. <laughs> and I don't know if it's working yet for iPhones because Amber has an iPhone and she could not get any sort of rating going on her phone, so on Spotify. So I don't know. But if you can rate us, please do rate us. It really helps. And a special thank you this week to Paul, whose name you're going to be hearing a lot because he sent us some books from our Amazon wish list. And I am going to be, and, and Amber, we're both going to be using the crap out of those for future shows. So you can look forward to that. And uh, don't forget to come over to our social media that I have been falling down on the job on very badly. Uh, and then in, in another part of my brain, I'm like, should we get on TikTok? <laughs> Oh, God. I can't even handle the the Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram where we're old-timey crammy on all three. And then I'm trying to take on more. Like, I'm a lunatic. I I know it. I know it. It's fine. So, yeah, all that stuff. And uh, that's all my bullshit. What you doing this week? I am just working a bunch. That's really all I'm doing. Just working a bunch. I'm trying to find some sort of remedy for my back and my hips. And I'm trying literally everything I can find. And so on Tuesday, I'm getting a lymphatic drainage massage. Sounds it sounds interesting. I know, I know, but uh, I think it's gonna be good. I also have a book recommendation. I have been listening to Roaring Girls: The Extraordinary Lives of History's Unsung Heroines by Holly Kite, K Y T E. It's also the Forgotten Feminists of British History. It depends on if you look at the title that Scribd has or the title on the cover. So. Uh, and our all-time favorite lady, Maul Cutpurse, is the very first life that she discusses. That's awesome. So really good. I've been really enjoying that book. Pick that up or listen to it or whatever. And so, yeah, that's uh, that's our shit. So um, don't buy nails from stores that don't sell them, I guess is the takeaway. Or you could just not lie to cops. Also that, yes. Yeah, yes. that's probably a good we'll one. We'll take that one, too. All right, thank you for listening, and we will see you next week for more 
crimes from the before times that are old. And bye. Bye. <laughs> And this was not... You okay? <laughs> what did you do? I dropped my phone on my toe. Oh, okay.